HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market. A New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, October 7th. This is the 81st episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding restaurateur. I will introduce him in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. Today's tip is to never give up. Believe in yourself and don't let anything get in your way of success. If you work hard and have a positive attitude, good things will come. Of course, there may be obstacles along the way, and it may not always be easy. But remember, you can accomplish anything if you put your mind to it. So keep at it. That's my tip today. I'm very honored to have my guest here now. It is Chris Cannon. He is the owner of Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen at the Vale Mansion in Morristown, New Jersey. Chris previously worked as principal in acclaimed Manhattan restaurants, including Lampero, Convivio, Alto, and James Beard Award Morea. He is a passionate wine lover who grew up in Manhattan and is a graduate of Brown University. So welcome. Wow. That sounds really impressive. It does. I mean, you were the principal in those restaurants. I worked as the principal. It was like they were schools, but I goofed that. You were the principal of them. Well, I mean, if you know restaurant staff, it's kind of like being a principal. (laughs) I guess so. So, yeah, yeah, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) So, well... Welcome. Thanks for coming out here today. It's a pleasure. My favorite restaurant in the city. Ah, Love it. Yeah. Had lunch here. It was fantastic. You have some pizza? Pizza. Pizza and a little glass of Nebbiolo. Fantastic. Beautiful. Yeah, well, I know you like Italian wine, so I guess you like Italian food. I love Italian food. Um, Yeah, I grew up uh, 
my mom was a great cook and I was a francophile. She was, you know, she, she was raised in, in Greece and, and uh, went to school in Paris, so she was a great French cook. She taught me how to cook. We drank French wine at home. We had, you know, full dinner every night with appetizer, main course, sometimes dessert, or ring dings or whatever. <laughs> it was the 60s, you know. And um, uh, I spent summers in Greece, and uh, when I discovered... Uh, Early on in my career, Italian food at a high level with Tony May at the Palio. It was kind of like a cross between the Greek Mediterranean food and French food. And I had never, you know, my mom cooked some Italian food at home, but I had never really delved into the, the details of Italian food and the sophistication and all the regional cuisines and, and all the wines. And eventually at Palio, I learned on the job. They had one of the first uh, real Italian sommeliers working in the United States, and he taught me all about wine, and I just tasted and tasted and read about it. And I learned about wine, really learned about wine through Italy, which is, I think, a real advantage because there are thousands of different grape varietals in Italy. Different regions call different grapes, different names. You know, Some producers are you know, making blends of change every year. So you have to keep a very open mind about wine, and it's... Yeah, I'm still to this day, after you know, spending 25 years you know, buying wine and, and buying Italian wine, I'm still finding grape varietals I've never heard of to this day. It's, it's amazing. Well, I think it's wine is one of those fields that you can never stop learning. You never know everything. Yeah, well, I firmly believe that. You know, the more, the more <laughs> At least you know, I feel that way. The more you know, the more you know that you know just right a little bit. You know, you don't know everything. Right. Well, but that sounds like a nice childhood. Oh yeah, hanging out in Greece. It's pretty good. So when you went to school, did you think you wanted to get into the restaurant business? Um, I, I'm one of these people that had decided at like six or seven years old that I wanted to be a restaurateur. Oh, wow. Uh, strangely enough. You know, I, you know we, we grew up in the late 60s in, in Manhattan. Uh, there weren't a lot of great restaurants in Manhattan, and the, the couple that were very good were very expensive. My parents would never take us out to those restaurants. It was like my dad and mom would go out fancy night. But they did take us out to one restaurant called the Gloucester House, which was the best seafood restaurant in Manhattan, uh, because a very good friend of theirs, a Greek man, owned it. And uh, it was kind of like a sister restaurant to uh, the Coach House down where Babo is now, which was, at the time, in the 70s, considered like the best American restaurant in the country. Um, so we'd go there two or three times a year, and it was like, to me, it was like magic. You know, going into this restaurant, they had all these old waiters that had been there for years and uh, had worked on the Pullman cars down south. They were all black waiters. He actually had a, a lawsuit against him because he was hiring only black waiters from down south. Um, but they were, like, so well-trained. They understood, uh, you know, service completely. They understood how to take care of customers, and they knew every customer that was coming in there, what they liked, what they didn't like, what cocktail they had, et cetera, et cetera. And I just fell in love with the kind of interplay between customer and and the staff and food and wine. And now you mentioned Tony May. Now, Palio, I think that was before my time living here because I'm familiar with him with San Domenico. But when was, so you 1986. worked... 1986. 1986, okay. Yeah, a little opened bef- the a little same before. year that uh, La Bernadette opened. Oh, really? And then you went to Judson Grill. Uh, then I went to Remy. You went to Remy. For three or four years. Okay. And then I went to Judson Grill. So I was in the same one block radius, right. you know, back and forth for, you know, 12 years or something. And then you opened your own wine Then bar. I went on and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I was working on 
doing Limpero, and it was taking some time to find a you know reasonable rent and the location with Scott Conant. And uh, in the meantime, I had another friend of mine who started having this idea to open an Italian wine bar, and specifically, you know, with Panini, a very simple menu. And the whole concept was, you know, obviously to serve wine, showcase wine uh, in a bar environment with the TV and everything. But the idea of Panini, we could make them all behind the bar. So literally we would have, you know, two to three employees, you know, that's it. And they could produce everything right from behind the bar. So as opposed to a fine dining restaurant, the labor cost was minimal. I mean, all three of them were tipped employees also. Even the Panino maker was getting tips from the customers. He was in the pool, so you know the labor cost was nothing, and so it was a really efficient, really cool business. That also was great after work. I'd go down there every day and hang out with other restaurateurs and chefs and stuff, and it was a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, and it sounds awesome. Yet you went into fine dining, and your all your restaurants. Uh, I was I saw three stars in the New York Times over a span of two years. That's Alto Convivio. And Maria, yeah, which is really impressive. And I had dined at all of these places, right. and they're phenomenal restaurants. Right. They were. So, um, so what was so going from a wine bar with paninis to running these, you know, more sophisticated establishments? I mean, well, I was still working at Judson Grill when I started, okay. you know, started the wine bar. It was kind of a sideline for me. You know, it was just like I went down there, conceived the whole menu, and helped put it together, picked all the wines. Did everything, and I'd go, go down there pretty much every night after work, you know. And it was fun. It was great. So what was your experience like running these other high-end restaurants? Oh, they were a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's what I figured. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, the, the wine bar was like uh, kind of refreshing, you know, just, you know, it was very simple, easy to run. Right. Um, I had a partner down there that was taking care of them pretty much, you know, the details every day. Uh, we would check in every day and talk every day, but it was it was simple and it was great. Really, a lot of fun. So now you're in New Jersey, and yep. now you're at working at a mansion. So I said you were at fine dining, and now you're like at fine luxury dining. Well, you know, we ha- we kind of have a little bit of everything. You know, it's um, the way of a fine dining room upstairs. It's a prefix menu at night. Um, we have an oyster and wine bar and a cocktail bar that serve pretty much the same kind of upscale casual menu. Uh, farm-to-table kind of stuff. And then we have on the weekends a German beer garden in the basement called the Ratskeller. So we kind of, uh, it's kind of like diversifying the portfolio within one business. And it really came to fruition because the way the building was constructed, uh, it was virtually impossible to have one menu across the whole restaurant. So I kind of took organically what the building presented to me and conceived the restaurant that way. Okay, so let's back up a little. So this is Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Now, what what drew you to New Jersey, to this mansion, uh, to leave Manhattan and open this? It's a very um, uh, ambitious project. Yeah, well, I mean the the, the man the mansion I found through a friend of my 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 wife's. Um, he came to me and said he was he was going to the restaurants in the city. Said you got to come check this out. And I was still working in the city at the time. And I went out there and saw it, and I just kind of, like, stuck in my head. I was like, wow. The building originally was the uh, home of the first president of AT&T, Theodore Vale. Um, towards the end of his career, he built it to be a small museum. And basically a two-bedroom kind of 
uh, Pied-a-Terre in Morristown, which was his hometown. Uh, he was a huge art collector. He helped conceive the telephone. His uncle uh, that lived in Morristown helped conceive the, um, the telegraph. And so this building was supposed to house those inventions and a lot of his art. Uh, his wife died in the middle of construction, so he basically never moved in. He died a couple of years later, and the building was just, it was left to his niece. She had no idea what to do with it. They would assault this city hall to Morristown. And for seven years of a city hall, they sold it. They, it became too small for a city hall. They moved to a larger building, and they sold it to a developer, and it was empty for 20 years. Wow. I should have, last week, I, I did a, a little on-the-road episode in mm-hmm. my industry news about my experience at Newport Mansions Wine and Food right. Festival. Should have tied I should have just had the all mansion right. episode. I you know, this is I didn't know I was going right. to have so many mansions but, you know, to talk the, about. Uh, the attraction too of the, the mansions it's right next door to the community theater in Morristown which has 1200 seats and yet okay. you have bands you know acts playing there three or four times a week. So you have a built-in pre-theater audience, you know, it's in the middle of a town. So you have lunch business, you have dinner business. See, that that helps me with the visual because right. I was being at Newport Mansions. These mansions are very spread out in, in Newport, yeah. and there isn't anything around there but other mansions. Right. Now, we're, we're, <laughs> so, in the, we're in the center of town, okay. so that's one of the, uh, the attractions. But, you know, we're in a, a fairly, you know, 60,000 people there during the day. Um, it's basically the, the middle of a hub where the spokes are some of the richest communities in New Jersey. So you have, you know, Bed, Bedminster and Mendham and Bernardsville and Summit and Short Hills and all around it. Got so it. it's, so it's, it's in a great location. Yeah. So most of the people dining there now are people in the community, or, or is it a destination? It's a destination within New Jersey, I think. You know, people come from 20, 30 miles away. What about New York City? How far is Some it people here? come out. I, mean, I want to come. You should come. It's fun. <laughs> and the train uh, lets you off a, a block and a half away. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I will. I will work on that. You can plan. do the solo dining thing. I could. Yeah. It would be a good one. It would be a great cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'd have to choose which of the four concepts. So, um, oh, we can move you around. <laughs> okay. I want to hear more about the different concepts, when, and we're going to take a little break and and sure. come back and talk Thanks. some more. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Here to Trade Your Network. I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too, and I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. 
Okay, welcome back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Chris Cannon, the owner of Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen in Morristown, New Jersey. So tell me more about these four concepts. So you have the Vale Bar, you have an oyster and wine bar, Mm -hmm. the dining room, and Rathskeller Beer Hall. So are they open all the time, different times? The dining room's open in the evenings um, uh, from Tuesday through Saturday. Uh, the Oyster and Wine Bar is open lunch and dinner Tuesday through Friday, brunch on Sunday, and the Veil Bar at the same time. Uh, the Ratscaler is our private event space. It's uh, 85 to 100 seats during the week, and on the weekends, Friday, Saturday night, it's a German beer garden. Because Friday, Saturday night, it's, you know, crazy in New Jersey, busy, busy, busy. Crazy in New Jersey. So we can, you know, basically utilize that space for overflow when it gets crazy. Uh, we have a separate bar down there, so if the bar upstairs bar gets too busy, we can move people downstairs. A lot of Fridays, we'll have rock bands playing there downstairs. Sounds really yeah. fun. It's fun. It's oh, like a three-ring circus. Overall, how big is the, is the space and how many seats? How many people the are The building you? is 15,000 square feet. We have about 670, 65 employees and 250, 250 seats. Including bar, bar stools. Okay. So what's the difference between running these restaurants in New Jersey between running restaurants in New York City? Um, well, people don't eat dine out as late in New Jersey, which is a great thing. You, know, you don't have to <laughs> hang out till 2 in the morning. Um, the car is very important in Jersey, so parking is very important. Um, Do you have a big mansion lot? Uh, we have a public <laughs> parking lot uh, right there, and then we have some, some of our own parking, so we valet. Um People in New Jersey are less adventurous than in New York, so it's always a kind of a battle to figure out how, you know, adventurous and esoteric you can make your menu. Uh, we're constantly struggling with, you know, that. Uh, but we serve, you know, fried rabbit legs, octopus, sweetbreads, um, you know, some pretty esoteric stuff for New Jersey uh, that don't know, you don't normally see in menus out there. Um, so it, it is different than New York, for sure. But it's great. Yeah, well, and you live out there, too. We were mentioning before the show that I know your wife. Yeah. You <laughs> well, both went to we, Michigan, we, right? I just Yeah, we both went to Michigan, and I discovered that at a, it was at one of the James Beard Awards where I, I ran into her and you and Becky, and I think we lived in the same dorm. Yeah, well, her hair is unmistakable. You know, you yeah. see it. <laughs> and she's, she's, she's tall. She's yeah. much taller than me. Yeah, taller than me. <laughs> taller than everyone. Um, no, but I love, I love like reconnecting with people and having that. So, you, your lifestyle is 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 different than it, it used to be. Cause well, yeah, I mean, I used to have to commute two to three hours a day into the city, and you know, work from you know ten till midnight, one o'clock every day, and then drive home. Now, you know, I'm ten minutes away from my home. I've got three kids. I can go home in the afternoon, prepare them dinner, help them with their homework, and then go back to work. And it's just a much more civilized, intelligent kind of pace of life. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I do miss the city, though. I mean, you know, there's so much energy and fun in the city, and you know, but I don't miss it sometimes either. Right. Now, I read something about a vision you had as a for the space as a culinary and cultural hub with art and wellness. Is is that? Yeah, no, uh, art, I mean, once again, you know, the building was meant to be 
a museum, you know, and when I went, uh, visited the building the first time and subsequently, you know, I just felt the building kind of like its soul, it, it was missing its soul, you know, it, it never been used for the purpose that it was intended to be used for. And so art became really important to me to, to basically create the environment because it's a very, you know, beautiful Italianate building from 1917, 18 that could be very formal. And uh, we utilized, I utilized contemporary art to kind of, you know, in kind of a whimsical way sometimes to make it more contemporary, more, you know, accessible, more fun, you know, and, and tone down the formality a little bit. And to me, you know, food is culture. I mean, the kind of food that we serve is very influenced by Italian cuisine, uh, so it's very influenced by very uh, traditional technique uh, that's been handed down over the centuries in different regions and different towns in Italy. And we try to reinterpret that slightly, but we are pretty faithful to that because we believe that uh, that cultural expression is more resonant, I think, than other kinds of food. Why is it called Jockey Hollow? Well, uh, Morristown is known primarily as being the headquarters of George Washington during the Revolution. And, you know, his headquarters are there, you know, where he, where he slept is there, you know, museums and stuff. And Jockey Hollow was the first historical national park south of Morristown where his troops were stationed for two winters, right before they won the Revolution. So when I went there, I was like, okay, I want to uh, pay homage to the town and the history and the culture of Morristown, and they didn't want to call it, you know, George and Martha's Place or, you know, something silly like that. So I went and looked, and, you know, Jockey Hollow just jumped out of me as being kind of, you know, we had this cocktail bar that's kind of reminiscent of a bar from the 40s. So, you know, I remember the Jockey Club in New York and El Morocco and stuff like that, so the jockey thing just in my head kind of had that connotation. Um, my dad grew up in that period, you know, where you go out to bars like that and fun places, and cocktails are very important to the restaurant, so... We, I ended up with the name. I and, like it. It's yeah. got a good ring to it. Yeah. Now, it's your one-year anniversary coming, coming up. up. Coming up. And are you doing anything special? Working. <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> yeah, no, nah, you know, we, 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 we were, we were going to go out last week, uh, the managers and stuff, and everyone was, like, so tired. We're like, yeah, no, we'll, we'll do it at the end of the year, you know, in January. But are you doing something season. at the restaurant? Is there a special nah, going? not really. No, we're, you know, nothing? we're just keep going you know just uh when we're 10 years old we can have a party one year old is you know we're just okay. we're just in our infancy still i'm still here 10 years from now we'll come <laughs> back we'll do a show we'll have a party yeah. <laughs> okay let me ask you the question i have from last episode when i had on jamie schweid he's the executive vice president of schweid and sons and they're based in new jersey too mm-hmm. So his question was, what's the biggest challenges facing a restaurant today with the millennial generation or technology-savvy customer that's coming to your establishment? Uh, Social media. I think you really need to use social media heavily. Um, At the restaurant, we also uh, utilize uh, iPads for menus. So the menu Uh, and the Oyster Bar and Vail Bar are on an iPad together with all the cocktails, the cocktail list, the wine list. And we have it organized so that <clears throat> when we change the menu on the iPad, it changes automatically on our website. Oh, neat. And the wine list changes automatically on the website. So, you know, in the past, you'd change the menus by hand paper, and then you'd forget to change the menu on the on, on online. 
so you know we spent a lot of time doing that um some people are very comfortable with it a lot of people are some older people are not so we have paper menus on the side in case you know they're uncomfortable with the ipad but we feel like everyone has an iphone and whatever they do how are you how are you feeling with the fact that everyone does have an iphone and is taking pictures of everything they eat and instagramming instantly or tweeting or uh, i mean there's a lot of people out there now just voicing their opinion like instantly or you know is that affected you anyhow Nah, you know it's what it is. You know, it's it's it's, it's <laughs> just you know, roll with it. You just got to roll with it. It's like you know, it's the uh, environment we live in, and it's you know, it it can be frustrating sometimes, and it can be great other times, and you just got to take it, you know, with a grain of salt, and you know, figure it out. Do you like social media? Do I like it? Um, you know, I utilize it to a certain degree. I don't, you know, I think it's kind of a little self, overly self-aware sometimes and I, I'm not that way so it's uh I gotta force myself to use it right yeah yeah but it has it has changed things like, I don't I don't do selfies <laughs> my 13 year old does selfies like no no selfie day. stick no no selfie yeah. stick no no I mostly take pictures of food and yeah. I I now can't eat anything without taking a picture of it first and it's <laughs> it's I wonder if this is like the rest of my life this is it you know yeah. but yeah. we'll see Maybe, I think things always change so we'll no, see what happens everything goes in cycles yeah so. yeah Right. Okay, so we're going to take another break here. Come back. We're going to do my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. magic wand tomorrow everyone in the world would have enough food to eat that was culturally appropriate and delicious the planet would be thriving because all the food would have been grown and produced in a way that sustains us both our bodies and our our world but man i do not have a magic wand what i do have is you and this radio station the heritage radio network that's what we're here to do we're here to help lead the way to a future that's more delicious, that's more fun, where we're healthier, where the plant is healthier, and we want you to be a part of that. We can't do it without you. As a nonprofit radio station, we depend on the support of our listeners. So take a minute out of your day, visit the website, and click the big beating donate tab. Throw us a few bucks. Every bit helps. We're counting on you. Okay, we are back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Chris Cannon. It's time for my speed round game. So, Chris, I'm going to name a couple things, and you pick your preference. It's like uh-huh. an either-or situation. Can you handle it? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Depends what you ask. <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. <laughs> for me. <laughs> It's, these, these are how your answers. Mm. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? T- uh, a la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. 
communal table or chef's counter? Communal table. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Uh, All-inclusive charge. By the glass, bottle, or cortino? Bottle. A few more. The New York Times stars or Michelin stars? New York Times. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Morristown? Morristown. Very good. You were speedy. <laughs> oh, you got the game. Some people get stuck on everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. The questions aren't that difficult. Yeah, but no, I have I have guests that know what they say, they know what they like, and then I have other ones that there's a there's a reason why it could go either way. They have angst. <laughs> well, in this situation, I like a chef's tasting menu. Yeah. So, well, you were great. So, so a segue into my industry news. So, one of the ones I asked you, the New York Times stars or Michelin stars. So, this last week, the New York uh, Michelin came out came with out its, mm-hmm. its ratings of New York City restaurants. And there was there were a lot of articles, but Florence Fabricant wrote about it in the New York Times. It was interesting. Florence, Florence noted how Michelin didn't want to give her the or any reporters the ratings in advance and then because of social media they the pe- pushed them to do it yeah yeah social media all the chefs were going on and tweeting because they get the phone call right. and so finally they gave it to Florence and she wrote her article so <laughs> talk about how social media French, is French changing things pushed, you know? yeah so so what do you I mean what do you make of Michelin in New York and in New York City and in the ratings um, you know I mean they're, they're pretty accurate I think you know they exclude a lot of restaurants, I think, that, that could be in there. But, you know, it's like any rating system. It's not foolproof. You know, it's the opinion of somebody. So, you know, uh, I, you know, personally, yeah, you, it's a great marketing tool for the restaurant. It's, you know, a point of pride, I guess. But, uh, you know, to me, the New York Times really knows what's happening in the city. And uh, their, their opinion to me is more valid. Right. Did you see a difference when you between the amount of customers coming in when Michelin came out or with your start? Not really. I don't think it drives New Yorkers. Maybe now, after being in the market for more years, it might, but I don't think New Yorkers really look at it as much as people think they do. Yeah, I, I always hear they, you know, people say it's 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 uh, tourists and people from out of town right. that more, you know, carry it around and, and right. use it. But um, her article noted there were really... No surprises or no changes with the six restaurants that have three stars, which are Chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, 11 Madison Park, Le Bernardin, Massa, Per Se, and John George. And then the big news was that the modern Danny Meyers place got two, stars, got right? two versus one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were 10 new one stars. I don't, I mean, I think it's great. I think some, some, Notable or restaurants, I think, like Cosme, which has gotten a lot of claims this year, right. like wasn't on their list. So, mm-hmm. but it's a list. I think it helps people choose restaurants, yeah, and it's, it's good, and it's yeah. and it's nice. I mean, I think uh, it's nice to be acknowledged. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it drives us a little bit. You know, people always are happy when they get acknowledged. So, you know, I wouldn't. I was very happy to get the, the Michelin stars when we got them. You know, doesn't. Yeah. I mean, doesn't drive everything I do. No. You know. Oh, it's interesting, though. I thought maybe when stars came out, like it's an immediate reaction, or you know, all of a sudden the phone's ringing and more people are coming in. But eh, you know, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. As you said, I think it's more for foreigners than New Yorkers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, well, if anyone wants to check out all of the the restaurants that were listed, you can go to michelinmedia.com. Check their list. Another announcement I have is, so La Damas Gaufier, New York, which I'm a member of, they are doing for the first time an event called The Next Big Bite. It's going to be on Monday, October 26th. And what it is is they're focusing on what what you will cook, eat, and crave in 2016. So they're going to have food and wine and a lively, thoughtful-provoking discussion uh, with moderator Roseanne Gold. Panelists are Amanda Cohn, Amanda Hesser, Marianne Nessel, and Mimi Sheridan. And it's going to be at the Institute of Culinary Education, which is downtown at Brookfield Place. Sounds interesting. It's, I think I'm going to go. It does sound interesting, and these are all impressive women who are a part of this panel, and uh, I, I love being part of Les Dom. Yeah. It's a prestigious group oh, of... Roseanne Gold's great. Yeah. Mimi Sheridan is someone to be feared, <laughs> in, in a good way. Yes. I, I, I've seen her on panel discussions before, and she is so quick and smart, oh, yeah. and one-liners left and right... Uh, but she does intimidating. Not suffer, does not suffer fools, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, and she knows it. She has a lot of confidence yeah. too. So, no, this is this is a, an impressive group of people. Also, Marion Nessel from oh, NYU. Yeah. For um, sure. So awesome. maybe maybe come into the city. Yeah. When is it? It's Monday, October twenty sixth. You can find out more at lgny.org. Awesome. And, uh, Check it out. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a women's group, but men are definitely welcome. We are good. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to take one more break. We're going to come back and do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. to own the industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience, which this week is at PR Meets NYC's El Nosh Dinner. Here's the rundown. Location, Hotel Americano, 518 West 27th Street in New York City. The concept, a Jewish-Latino international pop-up restaurant that has enjoyed phenomenal success since it debuted in, at NYC and Sobe Wine and Food Festivals. The chefs, Roberto Trevino, who has a variety of restaurants in Puerto Rico, including his flagship Latin-Asian Buddha Thai, and Eric Greenspan, who has restaurants in Los Angeles, including Roof and Wilshire. Why did I go? Because I'm a fan of these chefs and the PR Meets NYC Festival. My experience. I arrived at 7 p.m. at Hotel Americano. Us guests gathered in the bar for a welcome cocktail, and then we were seated in the dining room at communal tables. I sat across from Latin Kitchen's editor, Amanda Cargill, and we hit it off. It was a really fun evening. What did we nosh on? Well, it was a tasting menu that began with assorted nosh, including yuca latkes with papaya crema and lox media noche, followed by four savory courses, such as duck consomme with plantain matzo balls and brisket carne frita, and finishing with a chocolate blintz filled with coconut temblique and malta egg cream for dessert. There were wine pairings too, but I passed. 
My take, so creative and delicious, every course is unique to itself and a conversation piece. The scene, Latin and Jewish foodies, if there is such a thing. Perfect for anyone who's up for trying new flavor combinations and a good time. Interesting tidbit. Puerto Rico Meets NYC is the second global destination under the Meets NYC brand, which began with Baja Meets NYC in 2014. Its team, Marie Elena Martinez and Galen Quinn, did a fabulous job bringing the chefs in from Puerto Rico to collaborate with top New York City chefs and restaurants. Personal fun fact. I dined solo at El Nash's pop-up a few years ago at the NYC Wine and Food Festival. I'm glad they brought it back. The cost. Well, I was comped as a media guest, but the price was $150. So many thanks to PR Meets NYC for having me as a guest. Would I go back? Sure, anytime. Website is meetsnyc.com. That was my solo dining experience. It was fun. Okay, it's time for the final question. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Next week, I'm having on Devin Padgett. He's the owner of Dev Inc., a company of festival engineers behind NYC and Sobe Wine and Food Festivals and the Aspen Classic, which is when I had met him many years ago. Do you happen to know Devin at all? No. He's, he's really behind-the-scenes guy, so I'm super excited to have him on the show. So what would you like to ask him? How does he deal with all the egos? <laughs> I love it yeah he's probably like, ah, it doesn't doesn't bother me <laughs> that's great love it <laughs> okay I will ask him and I will have to get out to Jersey and check out your place and congratulations yeah thank you so much for coming all the way out it's to been Bushwick a been a pleasure love yeah. this restaurant oh great great to see you so I've been talking to Chris Cannon. He's the owner of Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen in Morristown, New Jersey. Their website's Jockey Hollow Bar and Kitchen. On social media, you can follow him at Cannon Eats, and their restaurant is at Jockey Hollow BK. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry, and my website's BayerPublicRelations.com. Many thanks to my engineer, Liz Smith. And to today's breakout music, which was provided by Knife Show. The theme song to my show is by the California Honey Drops. I love that theme song. And the sponsor is Fairway Market. So thank you to everyone. Also, thank you to listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And feel free to get in touch with us at heritageradionetwork.org. Next up, we have a short clip of The Main Course, another great show right here on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next Wednesday with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then. Thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. You were saying there's Dorito flavor crystals on the cover? That was my plan, but they never went for it. The, yes, the, for those who haven't seen it, the font looks like it's made out of crushed tortilla chips. And my great hope was that it would actually be scratch and sniff. But. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, don't go into Barnes & Nobles and lick the book covers, though. They don't like that much. No, that would be good, because then they'll have to buy it. Oh, <laughs> you lick it, you buy it. <laughs> That's right. In episode 236 of The Main Course, hosts Phil Gilmore and Alexis McLaughlin talk to Mark Shasker on his new book, The Dorito Effect which explores the American health crisis through the guise of these iconic chips. 
and, and my book is not about how Doritos are killing America. My book is about how everything is becoming more like Doritos and how Doritos and how they were invented tells us so much about how, how our food system has changed. Yeah. So it's not really um, a screed against Doritos. It's more of a, it's a lens of understanding what went wrong. Doritos may be on the cover of his book, but there's much more to Mark's story than just chips. Learn more about what went wrong in American food in the full episode and catch the main course Sundays at 12 p.m. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.